this being the fifth and final sermon on the topic of our Lord's prayer, the model that he has given us, this pattern for prayer. If you will notice in your bulletin, I have enclosed a a quote from E.M. Bounds, a great prayer warrior back around the time of the Civil War. And there he says, and I quote, the goal of prayer is the ear of God, a goal that can only be reached by patient and continued and continuous waiting upon him, pouring out our heart to him and permitting him to speak to us. Only by so doing can we expect to know him. And as we know, as we come to know him better, we shall spend more time in his presence and find that presence a constant an ever-increasing delight. Let's pray together. Father, as we quiet our hearts in Your presence and prepare to humble ourselves before the preaching of Your Word, I pray that somehow Your Spirit would bring great insight, great understanding to our souls. Lord, I pray that we would move to a new level of prayer in our lives that we might indeed enjoy you more and experience more of your power. So I commit this time with all of my heart to you. In Christ's name I pray and for his glorious sake. Amen. Late in the 1800s, five college students came to hear my mentor, One of my mentors, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And while waiting for the sanctuary doors to open, an old gentleman greeted them and offered to show them around while they waited. And he said to them, would you like to see the heating plant? Well, it was a hot July day and. They thought this was a rather odd request, but nevertheless, they followed him down the staircase where he opened a door and whispering to them, he said, this is our heating plant. And to their astonishment, there in a very large room, 700 people were bowed in prayer interceding for the service that was about to begin upstairs and praying for their beloved pastor. Softly closing the door, the gentleman then introduced himself to the young men. It was Spurgeon himself. This, as I say, is the fifth sermon on this wonderful topic of prayer. And I have labored hard to rightly divide the text for you. And I've done my feeble best to preach these truths to you. And I pray that the seeds of truth have been planted. And now, by the grace of the Spirit of God, I would pray that these seeds will germinate within your souls, within your heart. And I'm praying for a harvest of praying saints here at Calvary Bible Church. And I believe that our heating plant is always in need of more fuel, the prayers of the saints. But before we examine our text this morning, I'd like to 
speak to you a minute about the church, not just our church, but any church that makes a stand for the gospel of Christ. Whenever you do that, you become a target of the enemy. As long as we at Calvary Bible Church endeavor to stay faithful as the pillar and support of the truth, we will remain on Satan's most wanted list. And dear friends, I would humbly say to you with all of my heart that Calvary Bible Church is at war. Many times you don't see it. You certainly don't see it as I do because you don't see many of the things that happen behind the scenes. You don't see it like our other elder Bill C. and some of the other men that are in leadership would see it. But we are under siege. And we have been since we have been founded. Whenever I think of anyone being under siege, my mind immediately goes to the land of Israel. Where I've seen the the ruins of cities like Lachish and places like Masada where they had been under siege. And I think of the old siege warfare that used to occur in those days. What they would do is the people who knew they were going to be under attack would run into the fortress of a city, wherever it might be. And they would shut the massive gates. And there they would prepare to encounter the enemy and the enemy would come as the Assyrians did, the Babylonians would do as the Romans would do. And they would begin over a long period of time, usually many months, building a large stone wall all the way around the city, a way of psychologically communicating to the people that there will be no escape lest you surrender. And then they would station garrisons of troops, encampments all around the city, around that stone wall. And to this day, you can see the ruins of these stone walls and and you can even see the stone walls where they would keep their horses and so on. And then what the enemy would do would be to begin to build a siege ramp up to one part of the city, the closest part that they feel they could do that successfully. And they would begin to build this ramp slowly but surely approaching the top of the hill where the walls of the city would be. And again, this would take many months. And like an irresistible force, the enemy would continue to pursue the wall with giant siege wagons, with massive catapults. Many of the balls that they would have would be in upwards of 300 pounds. And these balls would continue to hit the walls of the city. And they would creep a foot at a time as they would build the ramp. Maybe every day or two, you would have another feet, another foot or two or three feet. And while that's going on, they would have watering systems to pour water onto the siege engines to prevent the flaming arrows from the city from burning them. And also what they would do during that time of siege is they would have their troops attack various other parts of the city to keep the inhabitants occupied with the approaching enemy. Cities that were not well fortified would fall. If they were not well supplied or well trained, they would eventually collapse. And all you have to do is look at the history and you can see that. 
And I've shown some pictures here before of some of those cities and some of the great the great walls that were destroyed and the large ramps that the enemies used to approach the city. But certainly many within the cities would choose to surrender. They would rather cast themselves at the mercy of their enemies than die. They would rather become their slaves. Now, in some cases, they wouldn't like at Masada. You may recall the Jews killed themselves rather than submit to the Romans. But I would submit to you as your pastor that Calvary Bible Church has been under siege since its founding. So has every other church that refuses to surrender to the enemy. And while the battle has already been won, while we know the Lord is going to build his church regardless and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The battle for the truth rages on. You know, it would be much easier for us to surrender. It would be much easier. And sometimes I find my heart even pandering these thoughts and immediately I squelch them. But nevertheless, it would be so much easier to. Water down the truth so you don't offend people. It would be much easier to preach a feel good prosperity gospel. I could tell people what they want to hear. This place would explode in growth. Hardly anybody would be upset except you faithful saints that would leave very quickly. I could jettison Bible doctrine and preach a cultural creed of tolerance. I could do the 15 minute sermonette deal that is so indicative of so many churches. The one, two, three method, I call it, where you have one verse, you have two jokes and three stories. I could put cutesy, clever little sayings on a sign out front. Sacrilegious slogans that trivialize the glorious gospel of Christ and make the whole thing seem kind of funny. I could cheapen the church of Christ. The most precious assembly on earth called out and purchased by his very blood. We could come along and we could make our music sound much more like the music of the kingdom of darkness. Music that has no understanding of the glorious truths of redemption. That has no desire at all to glorify God, but rather glorifies their father, the devil. Then we could call ourselves contemporary. We could let our emotions rule our worship services rather than appealing to our minds and allow them to be renewed by the power of the spirit of God. So that we could, as Romans 12, 2 says, be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We could become a religious social club with no concern for holy living, for the purity of the church, never again discipline sin, never confront anyone. You know, folks, physically the church would grow, but spiritually it would die. Because of our refusal to compromise, because we refuse to surrender to the spirit of the age, because we refuse to acquiesce to the Laodicean type of compromise that is so indicative of so many churches. Because of all of this, Satan hates us. He hates me. He hates any of you that are a part of this church. The world hates us. We know that according to 1 John five nineteen, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Dear friends, we are at war. 
In Ephesians chapter 6 is a call to arms. You need not look there. You remember the text there in verse 10. We're told to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. I fear that many of you don't realize this, because if you did, you would be much more prone to prayer than perhaps you are. It's easy to get very comfortable in our safe little church, isn't it? A beautiful building, nice, comfortable seats. We can relax in the warmth of fellowship. We can recline in our comfortable little seat and Enjoy a worshipful service, beautiful music. We can put our check in the offering plate and we can nod in agreement with what the pastor says, hoping that our neighbor is listening to him. And then we can leave here and go out and live the American dream the next week with no thought that there is a spiritual war that is trying to destroy this church, trying to destroy you and try to take Take captives the souls of men. Paul warned us of this in 2 Corinthians 10, that we're at war. And he says, though we walk in the flesh, in other words, we have human limitations. We do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Dear friends, our weaponry is not of the flesh. It's not our logic. It's not our philosophies. It's not our clever ministry methods. Because our foe is supernatural, so too our weaponry is supernatural. And as we read the word of God, we see that we have two weapons, the word of God, the sword of his spirit and prayer. And we must understand our divine weaponry, dear friends. And, and we must understand that we are at war, lest we succumb to the enemy. And we must also understand the divine command that we have to pray. Pray at all times and do not lose heart, the word says. Pray without ceasing. So we come again this morning to our final examination of our Lord's model for prayer in Matthew 6 and verse 13, where we read, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now let's understand this text very clearly. It's not difficult. The word temptation is a word that derives its root from a concept of testing or or proving. It can be used for any kind of a trial. It's basically a neutral term. It's like two sides of a coin, this idea of temptation. On the one hand, it can be a solicitation to do evil. On the other hand, it can be an opportunity to do good, to act righteously. And here in this context, it is a solicitation to do evil. We are asking the Lord to protect us from any enticement to act wickedly, to protect us from any attraction, any allurement, any seduction That might somehow lure us into something that might dishonor him and bring destruction to our own 
lives. Now, may I ask you to honestly ask yourself, how often do you include this in your prayer? How often do you come before the Lord and plead with him that somehow, oh God, how I pray that you will lead me away from temptation and deliver me from evil. How often do we come into his presence to say, Father, because of the weakness of my will and the power of my flesh, I just plead with you to lead me away from anything that might rob you of your glory in my life and place me in the pathway of divine chastening. How often do we pray, Father, because of the ingenious schemes of, the, of Satan that are far beyond my ability to even see, oh God, how I pray that you will lead my foolish heart away from those things, those cleverly concealed snares of the enemy that would destroy me. How often do we really pray that? Most, I believe, must admit would be honest in saying that this type of prayer doesn't exist. So it is important to understand some basics of this whole concept of temptation. Some may mistakenly get the impression that God tempts us to sin. So I want to take just a few moments and go back over some material that we've discussed before in the past, but I think is very important to remind you of again. And in order to do that, I'd like for you to keep your finger here in Matthew 6, but let's go to another text. I'd like for you to go to James. James and chapter 1. And it's crucial for you to understand that while we pray for the Lord to lead us away from temptation, that does not mean that God tempts us to sin. And some people get confused with that. By way of context here, James is instructing the scattered and persecuted saints about proper attitudes towards trials, the trials that God sends our way to conform us. And beginning in verse 13 and following, he, he moves from external trials and focuses on internal temptations, those things that happen within us, those hidden processes of the human heart. The inner workings of, of, of wicked lusts, those consuming desires that entice us to sin. And so what we find here in verses 13 through 17 is basically a clear progression of sin that begins with temptation that really has four stages. There's a temptation, then there's a lust, there's a sinful act. And then the result is death. Notice verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away. And enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. Now, looking at this a bit more closely, we see in verse 13, the first step in this progression 
that ultimately leads to death. It is that of temptation. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God. Now here in this section, James is obviously referring to that aspect of temptation that would be a solicitation to do evil, that that allurement. And we see here that this allurement, this temptation to do evil is not from God. And so, therefore, we should never blame God. By the way, have you ever noticed how easy it is to blame other things about your own sin, to blame other people rather than honestly own it for yourself? We call it blame shifting. It began in the garden, did it not? Blame shifting. Well, I couldn't help it. You know, old devil made me do it. Or, well, if you just understood the situation, then, then you would realize why I was justified in what I did. Or as some people would say, well, I, I, I think I think God, God made me do it because he put me in that situation. Oh, really? Well, that's not what this text says. Notice in verse 14, each one is tempted when what? When he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And see, here's the key to understanding our text back in Matthew 6. You see, there what we see is, is it's not the Father that is causing us to sin, but rather we are crying out to Him because our, of our proclivity, our weakness to acquiesce to temptation, because we're so prone to being carried away and enticed by our own lust. And so we're saying, Father, Please lead me away from any scenario in which my spiritual immaturity and, and frailty of faith might cause me to once again jump headlong into sin, something that would bring dishonor to you. Now, let me digress for a moment, if I can be a bit more theological and technical, because I think this is important. Some people might say, well, now, wait a minute, if, if God is sovereign and decrees all things, then he must have decreed evil and sin. Or, or, or does it just kind of slip up on him? Is he not aware of things before they happen? Because after all, we can read in Scripture that he hardens hearts, he sends evil spirits, he blinds minds and sends strong delusions, he causes evil people to commit evil acts, for example, the crucifixion of Christ himself. We can read that he ordains evil in the hearts of kings to accomplish his eternal purposes. How do you explain all of this? We even read that he delivers sinning saints over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, 1 Corinthians 5. How do you explain this? If God is not the author of sin. And we also know that God is holy. Psalm 5, chapter, or chapter 5, verse 4, we read, You are not a God who take pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. So how do you explain all of this? In Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13, it says, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. My, what a quandary we have here. Perhaps we're wrong. Perhaps indeed God has a wicked streak. And he loves to lay some snare to cause you to sin. And he just kind of ordained the whole thing to, to, to trip us up so that he could punish us. Well, dear friends, the answer is simply this. And hear it carefully. It is not that God decreed evil, but it is rather that he decreed that evil could exist. 
And he did so for a purpose. He created the propensity in us to do evil. He created a propensity to do evil in creatures with moral agency. And he permitted it to exist when his creatures voluntarily exercise their wills to sin. You see, God did not decree that sin be committed, but he decreed to allow it for his glorious purposes that I'll mention in a moment. One of the greatest theological minds of the 17th century was Francis Turretin, a great Puritan theologian. And he addresses this very topic. And if you can bear with the old English, here's what he said in 1670. As to its beginning, referring to sin, he freely permits it. As to its progress, he wisely directs it. As to its end, he powerfully terminates and brings it to a good end. For if he had not permitted evil, his punitive justice would not have appeared, nor his pardoning mercy, nor the wisdom by which he turns evil into good, nor that wonderful love manifested in sending his son into the world for the salvation of the church, end quote. So indeed, we know that according to Ephesians 1, 11 and other texts, that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And we see that. He deliberately decreed that sin and evil could temporarily exist to demonstrate his wrath and to demonstrate his power and to demonstrate his glorious mercy, to put all of that on display, his mercy and his grace and his redemptive work. We read about that, for example, in Romans nine and verse 19. We even know that God uses sinful men and Satan as instruments of testing and even judgment. We saw that in the life of Job. We read in First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, that God, as an act of chastening, caused Satan to stand up against Israel. And it was Satan that moved David to number Israel. So all through Scripture we see that somehow Satan is God's ape in order that God may use him and even sin in the world to put his glory, his mercy, his power, his power, even in his wrath, in his judgment on display. But God is not the source of sin, nor can he be tempted by evil. He is utterly immune to its power and his character is invincible against all of the assaults of temptation to sin. We read about that, for example, when Satan tempted our Lord in the wilderness. Indeed, God is utterly holy. He is utterly set apart from anything that is even remotely sinful. Our Lord Jesus is described in Hebrews 7, verse 26, as holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. Now, Back to James 1, we see that God is not the source of temptation. If not, well, what is? If it's not God that's the source, is it Satan? Well, certainly we know that. But what we really see here is that the real source of our sin ultimately is verse 14, when we are carried away and enticed by our lust. And there's the second step in the progression. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now, the word lust in the original language refers to a strong desire focused on an object. And, and it could be a good or even a bad object. 
But in this case, it would be a bad object, an evil inclination, some kind of a frenzied craving. Here it would refer to a ravenous appetite for something that would be dishonoring to God, a passionate infatuation to have something that you foolishly think you must have. And of course, the satanic system that is orchestrated within our world makes those particular temptations simply irresistible. So much so that we will sacrifice anything to get it, to have it. And it becomes a habit so that we don't even think about it anymore. But remember, the fault lies not in the temptation on the outside, but on the foolish and lustful heart on the inside. So, friends, you cannot blame the seduction. You have to blame the sucker, as I say. You cannot blame the lure. You must blame the lust. Jesus tells us in Matthew 15 that the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders, and so on. And the Apostle Paul laments over and over again in Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 18, about the sin that's within him, even as he is, remains incarcerated in unredeemed humanness, and he agonizes over the members of his body. He says there in Romans seven eighteen, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is my flesh for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not for the good that I want. I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Now, James gives even further clarity to this notion that it is our lust and not the temptation that is the culprit in sin. Notice at the end of verse 14, he tells us that we are carried away and enticed by our own lust. That's interesting. James was very much an outdoorsman as you read about his life and certainly you read in in his writings. He constantly is using God's creation in the outdoors for his illustrations and all of the metaphorical imagery that is used. And here he he does this again. We see this more in the original language that we would in English. But the term carried away is literally a hunting type of term, a trapping term of that day. And it means to draw out and drag away or to lure. It would be used of the bait that a trapper would use on an unsuspecting animal that would appeal to the inner desire of that animal to get its attention and draw him out of his original repose. So he uses that term at the end of verse 14 that we're carried away, but he uses another term. And enticed, he says, enticed now is more of a fishing term and it's used in the same way as carried away that we just read. But with more of the idea of getting the victim to take a specific bait, some specific lure that is so appealing that the animal or in this case, the person will throw caution to the wind and just go for it. 
You see, friends, here is the power of lust. It is so powerful. The appetite is so insatiable that unless we keep it in check, we will find ourselves instantly attracted to that which is simply irresistible. And Satan makes it irresistible. But it's our lust that has the passionate appetite for it. And then the progression goes on from temptation to lust and then thirdly to the sin. Notice in verse 15, then when lust has conceived, what happens? It gives birth. Gives birth to what? It gives birth to sin. And of course we know as we read 1 John 3, 4, that sin is lawlessness. It is transgression against God's law, His holy standard. And anyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is rebellion against God's holiness. It is because of sin that man was separated from God spiritually. It was because of sin in the garden that man was separated from nature because of the sweat of his brow. Now we must work. Because of sin, man is separated from man. And we see the conflict that goes on between Adam and Eve in every relationship, even in the spiritual realm, sin separates, it destroys, it disfigures. Every man, every woman is born into it. Beloved, never underestimate its power. Treat it like a cancer. If you were to go to the doctor and he says, yes, you've got a cancer, you don't just say, well, you know, fortunately, it's not all that bad. And so, you know what, I think I'll be fine. But sin begins its metastasizing corruption at birth. And over the years, it degrades and disfigures and destroys. It's called that accursed thing in Joshua 7.13. In Scripture, often it is referred to as the venom of snakes. It's described as having the stench of death. And sadly, sinners run blindly with great joy, headlong, and to whatever the passion is. And ultimately they find themselves running in to the wrath of a holy God. And James uses a powerful metaphor here. He uses that metaphor of a mother giving birth. And literally what he's saying here, if I can put it this way in a paraphrase. When lust lies with temptation, a conception occurs. And eventually what is born is sin. And the result of that... Fourthly is death in verses 15 and 16. It says when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Oh, dear friend, don't you see this? The wages of sin we know is death. There is an eternal spiritual death for the unsaved. And sometimes there is an untimely temporal death for those that know Christ. If they refuse to live a holy life and continue to shake their puny little fist in God's face. But notice the precious promise that is used in contrast of all of this in verse 17. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above. In other words, there's something else that we can go after besides the allurement and temptation. It comes down from the father of lights. An old Hebrew idiom referring to. God, the creator, the one that created the, the stars and the sun and the moon with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. You see, friends, as believers, we must become more aware of the power of temptation. This is my argument here so that 
When we come to our prayer life, we will see, oh, God, yes, we're at war. And I see, Lord, the power of my own lust. And I see the power of temptation. And because of all of this, oh, God, I cry out to you that you will help me and that you will lead me not into temptation, that you will lead me away from those allurements that would destroy me, that you would help me to starve my lust and mortify my flesh. We should pray like this, Calvin says, and I quote, because we are conscious of our own weakness and desire to enjoy the protection of God that we may remain impregnable against all the assaults of Satan. He goes on to say man cannot become a Christian unless he acknowledges himself to be a sinner. In the same manner, man cannot have the necessary strength for holy living apart from obtaining it from God. Whoever implores the the assistance of God to overcome temptations acknowledges that unless God God deliver him, he will be constantly falling. And finally, Calvin says, we all have a certain weakness for certain things. Objects that excite our lusts. Constantly at war with the flesh. But what we are asking is that we will be spared of those allurements that constantly throw us headlong into destruction, end quote. There is a chilling example of the seductive power of temptation and its consequences. I've used it before and it came to my mind again and I felt like I wanted to share it with you again. Some of you have perhaps not heard it. Some of you have. The context was the Civil War. Once there was a 22-year-old young woman, very beautiful, charming young woman, highly educated, very well-mannered woman, that became a prostitute. And she died without a friend, died as a broken outcast of society at the commercial hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio, in the dead of winter. And they found in her personal effects a poem that she had written about her life. And it was entitled, Beautiful Snow. The girl had literally written this poem to describe her pathetic life. And as we read it, you will see the steps of temptation, lust, the act of sin, and ultimately death. By the way, this poem was taken to the editor of the National Union and it was printed the next day after her death before she was even buried. And the famous American poet Thomas Buchanan read the poem and he was so impressed with the pathos of the poem that he followed the girl's body to her grave. Here, dear friends, is a powerful example of the temptation written by one who succumbed to it. She writes, oh, the snow, the beautiful snow, filling the sky and the earth below, over the housetops, over the street, over the heads of the people you meet, dancing, flirting, skimming along, beautiful snow, it can do no wrong, flying to kiss a fair lady's cheek, clinging to lips and frolics and freak, beautiful snow from the heavens above, pure as an angel and gentle as love. Once I was pure as the snow, but I fell, 
fell like the snowflakes from heaven to hell, fell to be trampled as filth in the street, fell to be scoffed, to be spat on and beat, pleading and cursing and dreading to die, selling my soul to whoever would buy, dealing in shame for a morsel of bread, hating the living and fearing the dead. Merciful God, have I fallen so low, and yet I was once as the beautiful snow. Once I was fair as the beautiful snow, with an eye like its crystal and heart like its glow. Once I was loved for my innocent grace, flattered and sought for the charms of my face. Father, mother, sister and all, God and myself, I have lost by my fall. The veriest wretch that goes shivering by will make a wide scoop lest I wander too nigh. For all that is on or above me, I know there is nothing as pure as the beautiful snow. How strange it should be that this beautiful snow should fall on a sinner with nowhere to go. How strange it should be when night comes again, if the snow and the ice struck my desperate brain. Fainting, freezing, dying alone, too wicked for prayer. Too weak for a moan to be here in the streets of the crazy town. Gone mad in the joy of the snow coming down. To lie and to die in my terrible woe with a bed and a shroud of the beautiful snow. Sometime later. Someone responded to that poem. And the writer writes as follows. Helpless and frail is the trampled snow. Sinner, despair not. Christ stoopeth low. To rescue the soul that is lost in its sin. And raise it to life and enjoyment again. Groaning, bleeding, dying for thee. The crucified hung. Made a curse on the tree. His accents of mercy fall soft on thine ear. Is there mercy for me? Will he heed my prayer? O God, in the stream that for sinners doth flow, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. If I can speak to you from my heart, dear friends, if, if you're one here today that knows nothing of Christ as Savior, Please hear my warning. There's no heart, hope apart from Him. And the temptations of this world will be far too alluring for the power of your own lusts. And when lust will lie with temptation, it will conceive sin. And that sin will destroy you eternally. And dear child of God... I would submit to you that you need to be much more serious, and I speak to myself as well, about the spiritual battle that wages around us. Not just because of our church, certainly that's part of it, but because we truly love the Lord and Satan would love nothing more than to see us destroyed. And our weaponry is the word and prayer, and we must immerse ourselves in both. And I pray as we conclude these five sermons on our Lord's model of prayer, that we will apply these, group, these, great, these great truths to our prayer life. By the way, you'll never again be able to say, well, I just really don't know what to pray. Hopefully you've heard 
from this model what to pray. And I would close with this wonderful quotation that summarizes the entire model of our Lord's Prayer. And I would trust that the Spirit of God would apply this to our heart. An unknown author has said this, and I close with this. I cannot say our if I only live for myself in a spiritual watertight compartment. I cannot say father if I do not endeavor each day to act like his child. I cannot say who art in heaven if I am laying up no treasure there. I cannot say who who art uh, hallowed be thy name if I'm not striving for holiness. I cannot say thy kingdom come if I am not doing all in my power to hasten that wonderful day. I cannot say thy will be done if I'm disobedient to his word. I cannot say on earth as it is in heaven if I will not serve him here and now. And I cannot say give us our daily bread if I am dishonest or an under the counter shopper. I cannot say forgive us our debts if I harbor a grudge against anyone. I cannot say lead us not into temptation if I deliberately place myself in its path. I cannot say deliver us from evil if I do not put on the whole armor of God. And I cannot say thine is the kingdom if I do not give to the king the loyalty due him as a faithful subject. I cannot attribute to him the power if I fear what men may do. And I cannot ascribe to him the glory if I am seeking honor only for myself. And I certainly cannot say forever if the horizon of my life is bounded completely by the things of time. I pray that these wonderful truths will penetrate your heart and revolutionize your prayer life. Let's pray together. Lord, I know nothing more to say other than what has been said, but I do plead with you as your servant that somehow the power of temptation, the power of our lust would sober us and cause us to run to the closet of prayer and to humble ourselves in your presence and to cry out for your mercy. Lord, that you might deliver us from temptation. That you'll lead us away from it. And as your word says, deliver us from evil. Literally the evil one. Lord, I pray that these dear saints, these people that I love so much, will join with me in a renewed commitment to become prayer warriors at Calvary Bible Church. Lord, the times are tough. And they're only going to get worse. But Lord, what joy there is in your presence. And I thank you for that. Speak to our hearts, Lord. Change us for your sake. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.